Welcome to Psychedelic Science for the People. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we attempt to better understand psychedelic medicine through conversations with scientists and researchers. If you're a longtime listener of Cannabis Science Today, I'm so glad you're here, and I hope you stick around as the show and our branding continue to evolve. When I started this podcast back in 2019, our goal was to bring scientific research on cannabis to the people who need it most, patients, consumers, and industry professionals. Our goals haven't changed, but as you probably know, we're seeing a global renaissance in psychedelic research, as well as a decriminalization movement in the U.S. So it's never been more important to provide education on medicines like psilocybin, ayahuasca, LSD, MDMA, and ketamine. If you're here for the cannabis content, stay tuned. Our obsession with terpenes isn't going anywhere, and we're still going to be talking about cannabis. Thank you for being here. I hope you enjoy this upcoming season, and my goal is that these conversations provide a holistic understanding of psychedelic medicine so we can encourage safe and conscious use. Today, we are featuring Dr. Isabel Wiesner, a doctor of science in mental health based in Brazil. Dr. Wiesner led Brazil's first double-blind placebo-controlled study to test the effects of LSD on humans. In this episode, she shares the results of the study, and we discuss the effects of LSD on consciousness, thinking, creativity, and cognition. She also discusses her paper, LSD, Madness, and Healing, Mystical Experiences as Possible Link Between Psychosis Model and Therapy Model, and we discuss what can differentiate an LSD session from being a blip of psychosis to a healing therapeutic experience. Finally, she shares some ideas for future research and discusses why LSD could possibly be used to treat conditions involving memory and language decline, such as brain injury, stroke, or dementia. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and I'd love to start by hearing more about your research background. So when you look back at your, your, your studies and your, your, your life, when did you first become interested in studying psychedelics and creativity? Yeah, so, well, creativity was, in fact, not uh, always my first focus. In fact, I was more interested in uh, psychedelics and especially altered states of consciousness. So um, I think it was like when I finished school that I was uh, thinking about what to study. And then I thought that psychology would be uh, the area which um, there was like most to discover, like brain, neuroscience, uh, mind, brain connection, and so on. And then I started to go deeper into that um, during my bachelor's thesis. For example, I studied uh, deep relaxation and the uh, connections to brain activity. During my master's, then I was able to do a study uh, on hypnosis and effects of hypnosis on pain perception and the correlations to uh, neurophysiological activity, EEG activity. And um, after my master, I wanted to study uh, other types of altered states of consciousness, particularly drug-induced ones. And I thought of all the drugs that you could possibly give to people, psychedelics were, would be the most interesting ones, most fascinating ones from a psychologist perspective and also from uh, potential therapeutic implications. So um, I looked for a possibility to study psychedelics scientifically and go into the neuroscience of psychedelics 
And uh, at the time I want to start my PhD, it was uh, really difficult. Uh, I'm from Germany. I'm German psychologist. Uh, and at that time, it was simply impossible to get any research done in Germany. Uh, so I basically wrote to all the professors in, all the, in, in the whole world and all the teams uh, that were doing psychedelic research at that time. It was like uh, 2016 and not really much was going on at the time. Um, and yeah, and then basically I got uh, one possibility to do a PhD and get paid for working in uh, Campinas in Sao Paulo, Brazil with my uh, professor. And yeah, he offered me this uh, project, which was an amazing opportunity for me to go deeper into this uh, whole area that fascinated me researching psychedelics. Uh, and neuroscience and cognition, so the whole uh, like combination of uh, combination combination of areas that you could do as a psychologist, and yeah, and then I got got this uh, project. So it was I was basically at the right moment at the right time. So, what are the current regulations around uh, psychedelic use and psychedelic research in Brazil? Because that's where it sounds like this research project took place. Correct. Yes, exactly. We did uh, the study in Campinas, which is in the state of São Paulo in, in, in Brazil. Um, well, in, in Brazil, I think, com I don't know really about uh, like international regulations. I know that each team in uh, different countries has their own difficulties in making psychedelic research. It seems that mainly the uh, the Biggest problem is getting uh, the ethics committee to approve your project because the prejudice among the uh, ethics committee members is still very high. The psychedelics are like uh, dangerous and there are, there's no therapeutic use of them. So this seems to be the main problem in Europe, especially European countries. Um, in our case, it was not uh, the main problem. Uh, in fact, the ethics community was quite like positive towards our project and they approved it like almost immediately with uh, really small uh, adjustments. But the main problem in our case was really like the regulations around our research. So getting authorizations for, for having the substance and how to store it and how to manage like bureaucratical stuff which has nothing to do with the ethics community. This was like, it is not a really difficult process overall if you know how to do it. But since we had not really a lot of experience in it and also we had no colleagues who uh, had done this before, it was really difficult to like uh, to get to know the system. So we had to discover who was the important person to speak to and then the processes are very bureaucratic in Brazil in general. Uh, and in this area, I think even more because nobody has experience in improving studies like these. So this was what what was the most difficult part. Um, and um, this led, for example, to a very unlucky case that a very good friend and colleague of mine who was originally supposed to do this project uh, was not able to finish it. So it, it would be his PhD thesis, this LSD project. But in the end, uh, they got caught up in the bureaucracy and were not able to continue because then he would like simply spend his whole PhD just doing this bureauc uh, bureaucratic stuff. Um, and in the end, then he gave the project to me. And since they were uh, far, far advanced in the whole project, I was then able to conclude 
and to finish what he had begun. Okay. Well, yeah, let's dig into the research. So, um, and it sounds like you were able to come up with a number of really interesting findings from one study. So, so could you walk me through the, the research, how you set up the laboratory study, how you found participants and um, yeah, what, what was kind of the, the goal going into this? Yeah. So, um, as I said before, um, it was really lucky for me that a colleague had already like invested two years of his PhD in my project, um, which was why the project was really, really well prepared and well designed. So they had an idea about um, how to do the organizational stuff, how to recruit the subjects and where to do the study and so on. And um, so it, it was a lot of easier for me. Um, overall, uh, we designed a methodologically very rigorous design, which is a placebo-controlled double-blind study, uh, which means basically that we uh, gave LSD as a substance, as an active component, and we compared it to an inactive, uh, inactive placebo, which was basically a glass of water. And we gave these two substances in two different sessions to the same subject. So uh, we had, uh, and this is called a within subject design, crossover design. So the same subject receives two different substances. And then we check uh, what is the performance in this participant under LSD and compare the performance to its uh, session under placebo. And um, this is a very elegant design because you uh, control for like factors like personality and stuff like that, which can influence your performance. Uh, so since the same participants takes uh, two different substances, you can just uh, calculate that out and have just a pure performance. And this is a, the disadvantage is that, uh, especially in psychedelic studies, uh, so the administration was blinded, which means, means that neither the participant nor we, the investigators, knew which substance was administered during the day. Uh, so a big disadvantage of this design in psychedelic science is that blinding in uh, these types of studies is very difficult because basically at the end of the study, and this was also what happened in the most of our participants, they would simply knew that they had received LSD or when they had received LSD. Uh, so this was a problem, but this is always a problem in psychedelic studies. And there are several measures you can take to overcome these limitations you can for example compare different psychedelics like psilocybin mescaline lsd or non-classic psychedelics such as mdma ketamine and so on and compare them to uh, inactive placebos but then you have other disadvantages so for example if you perform cognitive tasks such as memory tasks which we do, did also in our part of uh, in uh, part of our study uh, then you have like very high learning effects because if you give the same task in different variations to the same participant, then they will simply be better in the fourth administration of the task. So you can't really uh, rely on this data. So um, however you design your study will always have um, advantages and disadvantages. And the advantage of having a few sessions within each participant and comparing to a relatively pure placebo, which is an inactive placebo, it was bought by the disadvantage of having a non, not very effective blinding. But then you have just to choose as a researcher, uh, which 
disadvantages you are willing to to buy. So it sounds like there were 24 participants. Is that correct? Uh, yes, exactly. We had a total okay. of 25, but okay. then one subject didn't uh, participate until the end of the study. She uh, just uh, participated in the first session. So our final example, uh, our final sample consisted in 24 participants. Mm -hmm. Okay. And each participant received 50 micrograms of LSD in one session and then just a glass of water in another session, correct? Yes, exactly. So the, the LSD was, um, we, we gave them like, um, we measured the quantity of LSD, which was like one drop, and then we dissolved this LSD in a glass of water, and as a control, we just gave a glass of water. And had the participants, um, I mean, I'm sure maybe they were all different, but had they tried LSD in the past, or was it many of their first experience with the psychedelic? Yeah, in fact, this was one um, condition for the participants to participate. Uh, they had to have at least one previous experience with LSD. So um, if they had, for example, one previous uh, experience with another psychedelic, such as ayahuasca, we had this case, then they were not able to participate in our study. We, we did this just to for security reasons. So we were sure that our participants had some experience with the substance and knew more or less what to expect. So um, here again, you, you have this advantage that you have a, a slightly increased security. Also, this was um, this suggestion was welcomed by the ethics community, uh, but there are disadvantages on in this procedures. For example, you don't um, know how much expectancies you have, how much expectancy effects there are in the other measurements. For example, if you have already the experience with LSD, then maybe you just uh, have a certain amount of placebo, placebo effects in your thinking. Then you think, oh, okay, this is like was this is what my last time with LSD was. Yeah, I'm now recognizing it. And then you have measures that are could be slightly polluted, which you wouldn't have if you had like naive subjects which had never tried any psychedelic. Um, but again, we made this decision for our subjects to be more secure, to know what to expect. And yeah, and, and in fact, uh, other studies now, recent studies are more and more going over to participants with zero, expect uh, zero experiences with psychedelics, which is a more clean design, but then it's not so clear what to expect from this session. Then you have to be really well prepared for any adverse effects as well. Right, right. And According to the literature, is 50 micrograms considered a microdose? Is it considered a full macrodose? Um, yeah, it is. Um, it, it is not really well defined, but it is considered overall relatively low dose. So, uh, literature says some some papers say would uh, classify 50 micrograms as a low, some papers as a moderate dose, but it's somewhere in between. So, it's not a microdose. Microdose would be uh, around one-tenth of a normal dose. Normal dose is considered 100 micrograms, so a microdose would be like 10 micrograms or maximum of 15 and 20, but then 50 micrograms is in between a microdose and a normal dose. Okay. So it, it exerts uh, perceivable effects, but not so high that you wouldn't be able like to execute tasks and um, participate in questionnaires, uh, answer questionnaires and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's set the scene. We have 
Um, and you were the researcher that was kind of observing the participant in all of these different studies, or did you work with a team? Uh, we were mainly like there were some other colleagues involved, but the main team consisted of me and my colleague Marcelo. He's a psychiatrist, Marcelo Falki, and I'm a psychologist. So um, it was important for us to have always one psychiatrist and one psychologist uh, accompanying the, the study guiding the whole experiment from the beginning, from the screening, which he did, the selection of the participants, uh, to the preparation, uh, conducting the study, and then the, the super-cute measurements. So we always had, had two people involved. And um, we also paid attention that always the same combination of people would conduct the two, se the two sessions of each participant. So, for example... Um, in a few sessions, my other colleague, uh, another psychologist, substituted me. Uh, and then he, when he would conduct uh, the session together with Marcelo, then they would conduct the first and the second session. So always the same uh, team constellation for the same subjects. But overall, <laughs> like Marcelo and me conducted the, the most of the sessions. Okay, cool. So to set the scene, so it's you and Marcelo in a room with a participant who maybe had a glass of water with nothing in it, maybe had a glass of water with the LSD in it. And then you start assessing, um, you, you're giving them like a number of different tests for to measure uh, their creativity. Uh, and I know there were a couple other tests as well, but which we'll get to. But but let's start with some of the tests that you use for to to measure how their creativity was impacted. So so what what kind of tests were you doing? What trackers were you looking at? And and what did you learn? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, uh, we did a really really ambitious study where we applied many many tasks and questionnaires to measure the largest variety of cognitive and behavioral and perceptional measurements measurements that uh, we could get and also that we were interested in. So overall, we had a look at, um, I would say, six different areas. Uh, the first four ones, which are already published in uh, our four articles, comprised first uh, the effects of LSD on thinking, so on the stream of thought, second on creativity, then we also had a look at subacute cognition. So when the effects, the acute effects were already over the next morning, how cognitive performance was. Um, fourth, we had a look at um, LSD models. So there are two uh, contrasting models. On the one hand, LSD has been investigated as a model of psychosis, and on the other hand, as a, as a model uh, in therapy to like treat other psychiatric conditions such as uh, depression, anxiety. So we had a look at these two contrasting models of psychosis on the one hand and on treatment therapy on the other hand. Uh, the fifth area, which is on data related to language, so language production, uh, we are currently working on. We submitted this article recently. And the last area uh, was on predicting psychedelic effects. So um, depending on the mood, on uh, other factors like how did you sleep, how much, how many experiences did you have with psychedelics and other drugs, and so on. Different measurements regarding the ex uh, the um, experiences, expectancies, and so on. Uh, how could they potentially predict 
all the other measurements that I have just uh, related before, like creativity, thinking, and so on. And this is one area this is the, which is completely unexplored by our team because it's simply so much data, but um, we are looking forward to dive deeper into this data set maybe, maybe next year. <laughs> So when you were able to kind of look at all of the results in terms of, especially when you were stacking the comparison of each participant, um, yeah, how, how much would you say create LSD really does enhance our creative, our creativity and creative thinking? Mm -hmm. um, well, um well, this is just uh, the results of one part of the study, right? So um, what you are referring to, it's uh, the creativity part. And here, I think it's important to mention also a little bit of the background. Um, so it's important to know that we applied a battery of different creativity tasks. So uh, different types of creativity, like uh, drawing tasks for figural creativity, also verbal tasks. Um, so different, different types of creativity during the acute effects. Um, near the, peer, the, the peak of the effects. So um, two hours and a half after substance administration, we started this creativity battery, which um, resulted in relatively high effects. So when the subjects did conduct these, study, uh, these tests, they were under, under a relatively high influence of the substance. And uh, I think this also impacted the results. And I think the results resulted to be different as they might have been if we had applied this creativity task battery, for example, the morning afterwards. So there are other stu studies that have done that. And what did we, we did, what did we find? We found um, not really an increase in creativity, but we found like two divergent, diverging aspects of uh, changing performance. On the one hand, we found increases in the novelty and surprise of ideas. Uh, so idea generation, associations, interpretations, the newness of ideas increased. But on the other hand, we also found impairments in another area, which was more related to uh, the utility of ideas, for example, or the elaboration, or the we call it convergent thinking, which is type of a rational thinking where you have to really like focus, select the best idea, make a combination, logical combination of items. Um, so we had these two different phenomena. Um, and I think it's really important to highlight that LSD not just like increases creativity, but that, that LSD changes creativity towards two different directions. On the one hand, we have these increases in, in novel and surprising thinking. On the other hand, decreases in anything that has to do with like uh, logical, rational, elaborational uh, working processes. Um, and what was also interesting regarding these results was that uh, we found, this was in fact uh, finding that we didn't uh, expect an increase in symbolic thinking, which I think is a little bit related to this increase in novelty and surprising. So uh, an, an increase in abstractness and meaningful interpretation of uh, creative ideas. But I think we are going to uh, go into detail that maybe in, in, in the next questions, right? When we go more on right. details. 
Right. Because that does sound like it might be related to some of the the mystical experiences that you reference in a different paper. Yes. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, so we'll, why don't we go ahead and um, talk about, because I know you had another paper also on the effects of LSD on stream of thought, um, yes. which is, yeah, which or the free, your free mind wandering. Um, so is that related to creativity and why was that kind of a separate um, why was that a separate paper? Why why is that valuable to study? And what were the results when you were tracking that? Yeah, so we could have combined the findings of the stream of thought and creativity in one paper. In fact, the uh, uh, editor suggested that when we submitted these two separate papers. But uh, the reason we didn't do it is, and in fact, uh, like there is research going on around stream of thought and creativity showing that there are relationships. In fact, the measure which we applied for um, free association uh, has been shown to predict creative performance before. So uh, these measurements are related, but they are not exactly the same. And the main reason why we didn't combine in one paper is that uh, the stream of thought measurements followed a slightly different logic. So um, the idea behind this part of the study, the stream of thought, was um, in general the, the idea, there are studies showing that uh, humans spend a considerable time of their everyday in mind wandering. Yeah. So when we execute tasks, when we drive, drive our car, when we go for a walk, when we go shopping, when we... Uh, even when we talk to people like standard conversations with not, not really new stuff in it, then it happens that our attention goes away from what we are actually doing and our mind starts to wander. And we are mind wandering on whatever topic, like uh, when I'm at work, I'm mind wandering about what I have to go buy in the supermarket later, market later and when I have to go to pick up my child from school and so on. So mind wandering is a really really important uh, facet of our everyday automatical thinking. And we wanted to explore, there, there are studies showing that psychedelics can change thinking, but this has never been like systematically and methodologically rigorously explored. So we wanted to make a really systemat systematized uh, investigation here. And since thinking is a very dynamic process with changes like from second to second, we wanted to describe how these thinking processes change over the course of the effects. So what we did was we uh, applied several measurements of the stream of thought and mind wandering as one part of it uh, before the substance administration. And then in two hour intervals after substance administration. So at two hours, four hours, six hours, eight hours and the next morning at 24 hours afterwards, we measured these uh, stream of thought facets. And by this, we wanted to, to describe how our automatic or freely wandering mind changes in the course of time during these effects. And this is a question that's quite uh, slightly different from our question from the creativity, because on creativity, we applied this uh, test battery, which focused mainly on the peak of the effects. So we applied just one time point and saw at the maximum of the effects, how does the substance change different facets of creative performance? While in stream of thought, we really wanted to make a close description here of a time course of uh, thinking changes. But of course, um, we could also look at correlation. We didn't do that uh, still because it's too many data. But um, I think if we looked at correlations, 
between these thinking processes on the one hand and our creativity performance on the other hand, then there would be a lot of interesting connections. So um, this is work for uh, future, uh, future projects to be done. Okay, yeah, well, let's focus on um, the next paper. And, and I, I see how all of these are related. So, so they're not, you know, of course, like I think the um, connection between creativity and um, your free mind wandering and then is also related to some of this creativity, the sim symbolism that you find when you're being creative, creative, but but also kind of this, this mystical experience that people can have when using psychedelics, especially LSD. So... Yeah. So let's talk about the results related to the paper on LSD, madness, and healing. And I'm wondering what trackers are you using to see if the people were having, uh, and in the paper, you use the word psychotic experiences, which mm -hmm. I, I feel like in, maybe this is just in the US, but I feel like psychotic experiences can have kind of a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. um, but it sounds like that it could really just mean having, you know, an experience that's not of this world that's a mystical experience or, or um, you know, something that's not as predictable or as expected. So, yeah. So I'm wondering, um, yeah, if you could kind of start talking about uh, what you learned from, from that part of the study. Yeah. So uh, first of all, um, I would like to highlight that uh, really psychotic or psychotic like experiences is meant as you probably uh, got it. So it's really meant in the sense of a, a dis psychotic disorder, psy um, psychotic experience, psychotic disorder, um, but not necessarily negatively because like, um, yeah, because uh, then you have this whole discussion in psychiatry to stop like uh, regarding patients with psychotic experiences as victims and like uh, starting evaluating their experiences and so on. But this is another topic <laughs> which I just um, um, like slightly... Uh, tried to 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 get in the paper but there was simply not that space but uh, just yeah, to make it clear so and um, we are really talking about psychotic in the sense of a clinical disorder here you and are talking that, about that or you're not talking about that yes i am i am okay yes. okay because yeah. right and, and I but not necessarily as a, as a negative thing like if you go into psychiatry you wouldn't have this um evaluation that psychotic is something bad because People who have psychosis didn't choose to to have it, but just have to learn how to how to live with it. So they wouldn't necessarily consider themselves as having something negative, but as something that um, makes it difficult for them to get along with life. But this is like. But could I just ask a, another follow up question here? Because I do think it's a little confusing as we start studying psychedelics in this setting, because the psychotic experience could be let's say possibly like hearing a voice in your head, yeah, yeah. which okay. could also be a spiritual experience of hearing the voice of yeah. God. Yeah. So how, how do we kind of separate these things in, in yeah. a laboratory setting? Yeah. Okay. So uh, let me start with the uh, break, background and um, like the rational uh, behind this part of the study. So um, the idea was here that uh, in the last century, when uh, psychedelics research was still going on, and there are quite a considerable, there's quite a considerable amount of papers published. Uh, researchers focused on these two different areas, which I have mentioned before. So on the one hand. Uh, psychiatrists focused on uh, like psychedelics for for treatment and depression, alcoholism, and so on. Uh, so for as a treatment adjunct, and on the other hand, uh, not a class like nothing related to this uh, treatment model. 
psychiatrist used psychedelics, especially LSD, uh, to imitate psychotic experiences. So this was um, even one um, like recommendation of the of Sandos, the company that, that distributed the LSD in the last century. At first, um, they recommended this to try the substance first uh, to treat like psychiatric disorders as uh, alcoholism, depression, and so on, but also to investigate psychotic experiences in patients with um, psychotic disorders. So um, no, not in patients, but to study this condition of patients with psychotic disorders. So they recommended, they recommended psychiatrists to take the substance by themselves or to give the substance to healthy volunteers in order to imitate psychotic experiences to understand what is going on in the head of a patient with psychotic experiences. And then, so for the psychiatrists, they could learn how uh, like a person is feeling if uh, he has these uh, distortions of perception of perception and so on, which we call psycho psychotic experiences. Or they would give it to healthy volunteers and observe how they were reacting under what they called a transient psychosis. So this was the idea in the last century. They used it, which was called then as a model psychosis. And uh, it is interesting to observe that there were quite a lot of studies on these both areas. So on the one hand, as a treatment model, on the other hand, as a psychosis model. And we were interested in investigating closer. How does it come that the same substance is used to treat one condition and imitate another one? This is a question that has never really been addressed in psychedelic research. And um, since the substance seems to be exerting both like uh, therapeutic-like effects and psychotic-like effects in healthy volunteers, we wanted to see, we wanted to measure these different facets of the experience and see whether there would be any connection and how we could like try to uh, build a bridge between these two contrasting areas. So uh, what we did in order to measure the psychotic experiences was simply we applied a questionnaire. This questionnaire is called Aberrant Salience Inventory. And this is also, uh, this is one limitation of the study that we didn't apply more instruments to measure psychotic experiences in a more comprehensive way. Um, but uh, at least it's a start. Like, you know, we uh, applied this one questionnaire and this uh, Aberrant Salience Questionnaire is intended to measure a certain type of experiences of experience that is used to explain how psychotic experiences come up. So it is used aberrant salience. This is a, um, a processing mechanism of our brain. I'm not going to details uh, of that because it's quite complex to explain, um, at least not without a PowerPoint presentation. But um, just for you to know, this uh, phenomenon of aberrant salience is used to explain how some people can have psychotic experiences and others not. So the idea is that they have an increase in aberrant salience. So we applied these questionnaires and there we have questions like, did you experience uh, a different uh, meaning of the things or did you like, uh, for example, experience that you're being part of something um, very important or that 
everything is making sense at a time and that there are no secrets at, anymore and so on. So these are aspects that you have also in patients with uh, psychotic experiences. And the idea was that we applied this questionnaire and then could observe certain similarities between these experiences in patients and in our healthy subjects under LSD. Okay, so it sounds like this questionnaire could be used in two different facets to kind of model psychosis as it's defined by traditional psychology, but also to, to measure whether uh, the participants are having mystical experiences. Is that correct? Like yeah, so interpret we, these results two different ways. Yeah, so what we did was um, we... The questionnaire is used in psychiatry research in order to explore psychosis. So this is where this questionnaire uh, comes from. But on the other hand, uh, we found, and this is what, in fact, we discovered in our study. So we found, first of all, an increase in aberrant salience. So in this uh, potential mechanism of psychosis under LSD compared to placebo. And uh, on the other hand, we also looked at correlations. And in fact, we found very high correlations between this uh, psychosis measurement, this aberrant salience, and mystical experiences. But I think it's important not to mix things up because um, mystical experiences are measured by another questionnaire, which has been uh, developed in the context of psychedelics. So uh, it has been developed in the, in the last century in order to measure psilocybin experiences. And it has been shown that this mystical experience questionnaire uh, seems to reflect very well these experiences. And what we found in our results was that these different types, so the aberrant salience and the mystical experiences seem to be closely related. But um, since they were developed in different contexts, it is important to distinguish this, uh, between them, although they have close connections. But come so what were the experience. what are the questions on the on the mystical experiences questionnaire and mm -hmm. what were the results of that one? Mm -hmm. So uh, the mystical experiences questionnaire consists of uh, different factors. So at first of all, we have the total questionnaire where you measure overall mystical experiences, but then you can also have a look at um, different facets of mystical experiences, and these are. Uh, for example, positive mood, transcendence in time and space, ineffability to describe the experience with words, and then simply mystical experiences as one factor of the total scale. So um, <coughs> these seem to be the factors that make up the like uh, the most important uh, results and experiences that you can have when you try to describe mystical experiences. And in fact, they are quite similar to aberrant salience, but not exactly the same thing. So for example, in uh, aberrant salience, you have you would have other, other factors, um, which are uh, an increase in significance. So increase in significance either uh, in, in, within objects around you or ideas within your head. And this is the main factor of the scale. And this, you don't have this in the mystical experiences uh, questionnaire. So this increase in meaning or in significance attribution is what seems to really differentiate aberrant salience, these psychotic-like experiences and mystical experiences. And then you have like other factors in the in our um, aberrant salience questionnaires, like senses sharpening, impending understanding, 
and heightened emotion and heightened cognition. So the subjectively perceived cognition <clears throat> is also increased. <clears throat> Interesting. Could you talk about these, you know, kind of these different measurements and how they're related to the ego as we understand it? Because I think with the mystical experience, oftentimes what um, the foundation of that is, you know, this dissolution or this, um, you know, dissolving of the ego and feeling connected to something um, greater. But it sounds like on this other questionnaire, the aberrant salience questionnaire, it sounds like is kind of how does the ego play into that? Yeah. Um, so, we, in fact, we had one measure that... Uh also evaluated um, the perception of the ego, the changes of ego perception, which is called the ego dissolution inventory. And it's a quite small question with only uh, eight questions around ego dissolution. So you rate there uh, in which to which extent you have experienced a dissolution of your ego. And it was interesting to note that uh, we had also very high correlations between also, of course, between uh, ego dissolution and mystical experiences, but also to our measurements of psychosis. So the aberrant salience questionnaire was highly correlated with ego dissolution. This was um, our highest correlation that we detected of all these scales which we applied. So, um, and this speaks again in terms of these psychotic-like experiences, because this is what uh, patients with psychotic disorders also commonly report that they have distortions uh, or a dissolution of their self-boundaries, of their body boundaries, but mostly of their ego boundaries, um, which are, of course, mostly experienced as something very uncomfortable by these patients, but this is also very characteristic among psychedelics. And this was also one of the reasons why psychedelics were used so popularly as a model of psychosis, especially in the last century. So there are um, for sure some connections here as well. Right, that's really interesting. And it sounds like there's probably, yeah, some more, some more research to, to be done there. But let's, let's go ahead and talk about the afterglow effects of using LSD. And it sounded like, so you had the first session with each participant where they were actually on, um, actually on the medicine. And then you had another session 24 hours later. So where they were sober, but probably still kind of having that afterglow effect. Um, so yeah, what, what kind of tests did you do in that um, second round and, and what did you learn? Yeah. Uh, so um, in order to measure these subacute sub effects, and uh, here the background of our study was, of course, to measure certain uh, therapeutic potential, right? Because if you have positive effects of the substance on certain cognitive processes, then you might uh, think about um, applying this as a treatment adjunct, not only which has not only effects during the acute effects, but also subacutely, which is like the whole idea of uh, drugs that uh, help in, in therapy, in the therapeutic context. Uh, so what we did was we wanted to apply, similarly to our creativity task battery, a whole cognitive task battery. There we measured uh, diverse uh, functions of cognitions, and, uh, for example, there were uh, the main areas of memory, of verbal and design fluency, of executive functions, and of reasoning, perceptual reasoning. And within each of these areas, we applied several tasks 
to uh, like reflect uh, the best we could these different areas and how they would be affected uh, under psychedelics. We know that psychedelics seem to acutely mostly impair cognition. So we have impairments in working memory, in attention, and in several other cognitive processes. But this is only during the acute effects and uh, under like low to moderate to high doses. However, if we apply very low doses, the so-called microdoses, uh, or if we measure cognitive performance after the acute effects have worn off, Then we have also studies showing uh, the contrasting effects. So we have uh, studies showing that microdoses can potentially uh, increase attention. We have studies shown that uh, during the subacute effects of ayahuasca, for example, ayahuasca settings, the morning after an ayahuasca ceremony, we have increased uh, rational convergent thinking, increased cognitive flexibility. So um, we wanted to explore uh, closer this potential of LSD to improve cognitive processes during the subacute effect in this case. And for this, we applied this uh, cognitive test battery. Um, most of the tests we applied, we uh, just measured the morning after LSD. But in the case of two memory tests, we applied one measurement before substance administration. And then we repeated the task the morning after substance administration. So in this way, we could measure memory consolidation. So what had been learned before the substance, how well was the substance uh, able to aid memory consolidation overnight? And uh, what we found was like, Similarly to our other investigated areas, such as creativity and the psychosis and therapy model, two divergent uh, types of effects. On the one hand, we found improvements, and these were mainly in visual memory and verbal fluency. So our subjects were better able to remember certain card locations. We applied tasks that resembles the memory game for children. Um, <clears throat> here they were better able to remember the positions of the cards after LSD compared to placebo. Um, we also found they had an increased verbal fluency. So when we asked them to name as a lot of uh, as a lot of words starting with a certain letter, for example P, uh, they were able to generate more words the, mor the morning after LSD compared to placebo. But on the other hand, we also found impairments, and these were uh, quite a variety of them within only one task. Uh, this task is called the Wisconsin card sorting task. And it's a task that is um, intended to measure cognitive flexibility. So in this task, you have to um, sort cards, a pile of cards, to a certain target task, uh, target cards. And you have to invent rules. And uh, then the investigator gives you a feedback whether this rule is correct or not. And conforming the rules change, you have to adapt your ideas about the rules. So you have several tasks in this, um, in this test. First of all, you have to discover the correct rule. And then you have to keep adapting your rules um, as the rules by the investigator keep changing. So... Anyways, it's uh, also complex to, to explain. Uh, but the most important point here is that this test is about uh, finding rules and adapting rules. And this is why it's called cognitive flexibility, because you have to be flexible enough to adapt your rules 
um, since the outer uh, the outer like demanding demands change and what we found that um, was that the participants were really worse in this task after LSD compared to placebo so they committed more errors they were able to discover less rules after LSD compared to placebo and they had an increase in perseveration perseveration is when you commit an error, a certain type of error. For example, I think, okay, now I sort my cards according to the rule color, because I think color is correct, the correct rule. But then uh, the investigator says that color is wrong. Uh, he's, he doesn't say that color is wrong, but he says this rule is wrong. And then you keep insisting in committing the same type of error. So you again sort your card according to color and again and again and again. You keep insisting in committing the same type of error. This is perseveration. And this was increased. So our participants were less flexible to adapt to new rules after LSD. And this was the other like strong side of our findings. On the one hand, these increases in memory and uh, verbal fluency. On the other hand, these impairments in cognitive flexibility. And then uh, when you think about how to apply this in practice and uh, conduct more therapy-related research, then uh, you would have to say that uh, maybe the, the research should, should focus on conditions related to, for example, memory and language declines, but uh, like have pay special attention to conditions which are already related to impairments in cognitive flexibility, because here maybe the substance wouldn't help too much, but even uh, like be hindering in this condition. Mm -hmm. Well, wow, that's interesting. And it sounds like you could even interpret that um, that lack of, I guess, as you described it, cognitive flexibility, but it could also be interpreted in a way of, um, you know, not not really wanting to go back. Like I'm thinking about it in a bigger, more abstract ways, but but not there. There's a type of creativity that could be associated with not wanting to follow the rules mm -hmm. or not wanting to to. You know, I'm thinking just when you in an abstract way, not like um, questioning the system or questioning the rules of of this laboratory setting. So I wonder if that could also be interpreted as as a positive thing when you're studying creativity. Mm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go so far because like in practice, when you apply the test, the people really wanted to like follow the rules and give their best they could. Like if an investigator says, no, this is wrong, then you get the next card. This is wrong. Next card. This is wrong. And they suffer. You know, you see it in their eyes. They they really want to do the best they could. And they don't know the background about it. You know, they they don't know if they, if you're measuring cognition or creativity or what else, they just want to do the best they can. So um, really found that they were not like uh, trying to resist the system or something like that, but um, really not being able to be as good as as they would probably have been after after placebo. But I mainly attribute these findings to uh, also the the really exhausting session before. I think this was maybe also one major limitation of our study that the session of uh, with LSD is really long. So they had an 11 day in, in the lab before during substance administration. And then they returned home like, home like uh, six o'clock in the, in the night. 
And then the next morning they had to return to the lab eight o'clock in the morning or, or was it even earlier? I think eight o'clock, seven thirty, something like that. Uh, and so this is really exhausting because often after you've taken LSD, then you can't really go to sleep. You are excited. You like um, sleep late and then you have to wake up early to come to the lab. So I think this might have been might have played a larger role that they were simply tired and exhausted and not really, really able to follow a such complicated task. This would be my interpretation. Yeah. But maybe there's something about resistance as well. I don't no, know. No, I, I think that's a yeah. I think that's a good point. No, thanks for for clarifying that. And and you only really know when you're in that laboratory setting what what these tests mean and and how you know how people how hard they're trying or if they're like ah I don't want to do this. So yeah. thanks for providing that that perspective. Um, so you do state in the paper that the improvements in um, visual spatial memory as well as um, Verbal fluency suggests that LSD-assisted therapy could be a treatment for conditions involving memory and language decline, like brain injury or dementia. So I'm wondering, yeah, like looking forward, and I want to ask you more generally too, what you want to, where you hope your research goes in the future, but but what's the next step for, for testing this hypothesis? Do you think there's, um, yeah, do you think this, this is kind of laying the groundwork for, for that as a new therapy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I hope it 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 does so. So it would be really wonderful to see that more research will come up uh, investigating the potential of these substances in these conditions, uh, especially in dementia, but also brain injuries and stroke. It is interesting to note that there are there is already a paper on I think it's animal research on rats, uh, which has um, a stroke model and a investigated psychedelics on um, the on these effects related to uh, to stroke and they found promising results and this is what we we also mentioned this um, this paper in our in our study um, so I think this would be an interesting next step in in humans to see whether these substances can exert some beneficial effects i think there's already a study going on or has it been published i'm not sure about that but i think there is some research in humans going on in this area Uh, also i have seen that they have now a study on the effects of psilocybin on patients with dementia but this is more on the uh, effects on depression related to this condition so people who have dementia and have suffered depression because of their condition they receive psilocybin I think in order to focus more on the depression part, but not the dementia part, but this might be an interesting side effect, you know? Um, So if it could be able to help the depression related effect, maybe it would have also uh, like positive effects on the dementia related effect, or at least, or at least slow down the progression of the, of the condition. And so I think these are very interesting areas, but I think like we are really at the beginning, we couldn't say anything about like, uh, potential of these substances. Um, I think it's too early to to say that. I think it's just our study just tells that there are some areas where more research could be done, and it's interesting to invest in this. But whether there's an actual potential, it's definitely too early to say this. And um, yeah, regarding uh, what I would like to to study or look at in the future. In fact, I'm I'm now working in another study which is focused on DMT. Uh, we are 
working, we are still doing basic research, so uh, investigating the effects of DMT on uh, subjective perception, but also on neurophysiological correlates, so uh, EEG signal. Um, but the second part of our study will be on depression. So we will work really with patients with depression and investigate the treatment potential of the substance here. The advantage of DMT is that it is uh, really short. So uh, in, instead of 10 hours, it's just 10 minutes of effect. So this reduces a lot of costs and uh, exhaustment in the, in the team. Um, but then you have other disadvantages, like uh, you have to really plan uh, conduct a lot of different measurements. So you're a little bit restricted here. You cannot have any measurements during the acute effects, at least not any uh, test performance or filling in questionnaires. You just can like uh, let your participants relate subacutely. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's really interesting for me to get to know this other type of substance, which has a completely different phenomenology in terms of, of time curves. Um, and yeah, but overall, I think I I would like to go back to psychedelics that have a, a longer duration, but maybe not as extreme as LSD with 10 hours, but maybe psilocybin or mescaline, uh, something a little bit shorter, like four or five hours, and then investigate, yeah, investigate closer perception uh, or other cognitive tasks, creativity tasks, and find some brain correlates. So doing EEG measurements and seeing whether we find something interesting. So this would be um, what would interest me in the future for future research. Cool. Well, thank you so much um, for sharing that. And yeah, I look forward to, to seeing what you publish going forward. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Psychedelic Science for the People. If you're wondering why we have taken a rather long hiatus in between the past few episodes, the reason is money. We are actively seeking financial supporters to help us continue to produce this podcast and make psychedelic and cannabis science education available to the people. If you are passionate about this cause and would like to support us financially, please become a Patreon at patreon.com backslash psychedelic science for the people. If you're not able to do that right now, we still love you and appreciate your support. Please consider sharing this episode or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much again for listening and I'll see you in the next episode.